I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark. That's the second Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Second Gospel in, it's called a Synoptic Gospel because it's similar to Matthew and Luke. John is a unique Gospel. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. We've been going through a series of messages out of this Gospel. And I want to just take something that I read. You know, I have a, I'm, I'm quite an avid reader. Some of you may not know that. Some of you do. Uh, I remember, I don't know if it was Andrea or Rachel, one of them said, Dad, I can't believe this. You read to study for your work, you know. And then you come home and you read more. And you have, you know, reading is one of my great interests. I really enjoy reading. I love novels. I love story. I like all kinds of genre, you know, from mystery to, you know, detective to drama. You know, I love, you know, movie. I love story. I love seeing how characters are developed. One of my favorite genres is the Western genre, you know. You go, I can't believe that about you, Pastor. I'm not even a cowboy. But you know what I like about it? It was a simpler time. The good guys always win. The bad guys always get defeated. Justice is prevailing, right? And, and, and there's always this creative tension between, you know, the, the cowboy against all the elements in life. And so I want to just read a little excerpt from a short story by one of my favorite Western writers, Louis L'Amour. So you're, we're really offside the Bible. But I believe that he's going to say something today that's going to speak to the topic that we're going to address. And he said, for 19 days he worked tirelessly, eight hours a day at first, then lessening his hours to seven, then finally six Weatherton did not explain himself to himself why he did this. But he realized he was becoming, it was becoming increasingly difficult to stay on the job. Again and again, he would walk away from the rock face for one excuse or another, and each time he would begin to feel his scalp prickle, his steps grow quicker, and each time he returned more reluctantly. Three times, beginning on the 13th, the 17th, and finally on the 19th day, he heard movement within the tower. Whether that whispering in the rock was normal, he did not know. Such a natural movement might have been going on for centuries. He only knew that it happened then, and each time it happened, a cold chill went down his spine. His work had cut a deep notch at the base of the tower, such a notch as a man might make in felling a tree, but wider and deeper. The sacks of gold, too, were increasing. They now numbered seven. Their total would be, he believed, amounting to more than 5000 probably near to $6,000. And as he cut deeper into the rock, the vein was growing richer. He worked on his knees now. The vein had slanted downward as he cut into the base of the tower, and he was all of nine feet into the rock with the great mass all above him. If that rock gave way while he was working, he would be crushed in an instant with no chance of escape. Nevertheless, he continued. The change in the rock tower was not the only change, for he had lost weight. He no longer slept well. On the ninth of the 20th day, he decided that he had about $6,000, and now he set a new goal for 10000 And the following day, the rock was the richest ever. As if to tantalize him into working on and on, the deeper he cut, the richer the ore became. By nightfall of that day, he had taken out more than $1,000 worth of gold. Now the lust of the gold was getting into him, taking him by the throat. He was fascinated by the danger of the tower as well as the desire for gold. He looked again at the tower and felt a peculiar sense of foreboding, a feeling that here he was about to die, that he would never escape. Was it his imagination or had the outer wall moved a little? The blow was too weak, too feeble to have brought forth the reaction that followed. The rock seemed to quiver like the flesh of a beast when stabbed. A queer vibration went through that ancient rock and then a deep, gasping sigh. He had waited too long. Fear came swiftly upon him, crowding him. Hold it. His whole body twisted, contracting into the smallest possible space. He tried to will his muscles to move beneath the growing sounds that vibrated through the passage. The whispers of the rock grew into a terrifying groan, and there was the rattle of pebbles, and then silence. The silence was more horrifying than the sound. Somehow he was crawling, even as he expected the avalanche of this mountain to fall and bury him. Abruptly his feet were in the open, and he was out. He ran without stopping, but behind him he heard a growing roar that he thought he could not outrace. And when he knew from the slope of the land that he must be safe from the falling rock, he fell to his knees. 
What an amazing, tense portrait. I've kind of just summarized it. It kind of captures the mood, the sense of what this main character is living through. And in this short story as entitled Trap of Gold, Lamour explains the seductive nature of greed that can endanger one's life. I think what the main character in the story is actually battling on a small scale is what you and I have to address day in and day out in a more insidious and seductive way over the longer scope of our life. You know, I've said this many times, money is an amazing servant, but a terrible master. What is it that sustains us in our journey through life? What is it that keeps us going? You know, for most North Americans, it's about, acqui it's about really acquiring what this world has to offer. For a lot of people, that's what it's all about. But is that what really sustains us? Is that what this life is all about? Is that what really brings meaning into a person's life or significance or purpose in our lives? You know, when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness to, to actually meet his own physical needs at the expense of his soul, that's probably the real challenge. I don't think God is, you know, not wanting us to work or to, you know, take care of the material realm. That's not what it's about. It's actually an issue of priority. Will I take care of my physical world at the expense of my soul? And Jesus repl replied in an amazing answer. I, I call it a classic reply. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus said, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And what Jesus is simply saying is that physical life alone cannot sustain us. What we need is the sustenance that comes from being with God, knowing God, living with God. We need his life. We need his message. We need his guidance. We need his priorities in our lives. And so here in our text today, we're going to see an episode of Jesus feeding a large crowd. Now, earlier this month, I spoke on a message of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Some of you were here for that, and I talked about some of the significance of that, and I talked even about some of the political ramifications of the feeding of the 5,000, and I brought out to you it was primarily a Jewish audience, and there were, you know, this amazing messianic anticipation that Jesus was going to come and deliver them from Roman rule, and Jesus actually recognizing that they had the wrong idea of his mission literally had to dismiss the crowd and get his disciples away from them. But now we pick up a different story. And this is another moment in the life of Jesus. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about Jesus as he's been walking through regions that are not noted for being populated by Jews. It was actually an extension. He was moving beyond the scope of his primary mission, which was to the nation of Israel, now moving beyond into the realm of the world of the Gentiles, which, by the way, are all peoples that are non-Jewish. Now, for us in this room, most of us are Gentiles. And most of us don't understand that as, as in any people group, every people group believes that they are superior to other people groups. It's part of our psyche, our mindset. You know, if you're Native American Indians, when I studied them, they were, they, every tribe believed that they were better than the other tribe. They really did. You know, Cheyenne actually means the people. So everybody else was less than the people. And, you know, we have that sense of the superiority. And so even the Jewish people felt that way. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, they saw that people who did not know God or Yahweh, the true and the living God, they saw that these people were at distance from God and therefore they were considered less than, unclean, impure, unholy. And so Jesus is now breaking all kinds of social barriers by actually extending his ministry beyond the Jewish people, extending out to Gentiles. And so in Mark chapter 8 and verse 1, we read this very interesting text. It says, during those days... Another crowd gathered. Another large crowd gathered. Later on in the story, we're going to find out that Jesus feeds 4,000 people. How many know that's a lot of people? I mean, we've even had uh, some days here in July where we've tried to feed people hamburgers in our city. I think we fed, what, 1,800 people this last year. Wasn't that a lot of people? If you were a volunteer, we had 70 some odd volunteers. Feeding 1,800 people, that was a major accomplishment. Can you imagine Jesus fed 4,000? That's a lot of people, folks. But just watch how the story unpacks itself, how it unfolds. You know, we're going to see from our text that this miracle actually happened in a wilderness. 
He, they did not have stores nearby. They didn't have towns nearby. As a matter of fact, they had limited resources, and yet Jesus is able to feed this crowd. So what are the lessons we're to learn from the second miraculous feeding of the crowd? What are we going to learn about Jesus' ministry? Not just in that moment, but because Jesus Christ is still living, he's still ministering to us, what can we learn about what he's going to do in this moment? Because, you know, as much as I like that moment, that's a historical moment, that's a past thing, I'm more concerned today about what he's going to do in your life and in my life right now. How many say that? I'm more concerned about that too, Pastor. I want to know what he's about to do today. What is his motivation today? What is Jesus going to do for us today? And so Mark, the biblical author, wants us to understand something from this particular miracle. And so what is it that Mark is emphasizing in telling the story and the ensuing challenge and teaching that comes as a result? And so I think there are three lessons that we can learn from this episode and the ensuing remarks that really tells us what really matters in life. Because for a lot of people, I don't think they understand what life is really all about. I think people are a little bit confused. I think sometimes we're just in survival mode. Or we're just trying to get by the best we can. Or we're just trying to, you know, live a life so that we can have some measure of enjoyment and some level of happiness. But I want to talk about what really matters in this life. And the first lesson I think we can learn from this miracle and the ensuing reaction is actually the character of Jesus. We can learn something about who Jesus is, not only for then, but even more importantly, what he's like today. Do you know what the first thing I notice? He engages with people. He's concerned about people. Look what it says here in verse uh, number two. Now, the second part of verse number one, it says, since they had nothing to eat, that's an important point, nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, by the way, in the Greek language, the word said is the emphasized verb here. It's like, this is the point you need to pay attention to. He says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days, and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. Here's some of the things I notice. Number one, Jesus is not just concerned about your eternal well-being. He's not just concerned about your soul. He is, but he's also concerned about you as a person in the here and now. He's concerned about your physical situations. He's concerned about your needs. He's concerned about how you're living. He's concerned about your relationships. He's concerned about all of these things. And as a matter of fact, he knows what's going to befall us. He knows what's coming ahead in our lives. We don't know what's going to come before us, but he knows what's about to happen. And I want you to notice his heart. It says, and Jesus had compassion. Before all the great miracles in the New Testament, you'll find out that Jesus was moved with compassion. What is, it? What is compassion? Literally, it means to suffer with. Jesus identifies with us in our weakness, in our brokenness. He's touched, the Bible says, with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows what it is to be a human being. Isn't it amazing that Christianity teaches a very profound thought? God so understands humanity because God became a man. How many think that's amazing? He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what it is to be tested in this life. He knows all the struggles. He knows what it is, you know, to be hungry. He knows what it is to be thirsty. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to be forsaken. He knows the human experience. And therefore, he can identify with us in our weakness and in our brokenness. I love this about Jesus. It's amazing. So he understands the challenges that we face. You know, we're immediately struck with the fact that Jesus took the initiative in meeting the basic needs of these people. You know, I think often in our culture today, because we live in affluence, there's a sense that we don't really need God. Isn't that kind of true in North America? Why, why you know, we kind of make it on our own. And I just wrote, so often we think we don't need God, we can take care of ourselves. Isn't that true? We kind of think this way. We, we don't ever say this out loud, but really we kind of, we know how to work and we know how to make money and we know how to save and we know how to do this. And you know, we, we don't feel a, a great dependency on God. But if you were living in a different culture and if you were living in a far more 
on the line, uh, kind of a meager existence, all of a sudden, the very essence of life becomes more significant to you. What are you talking about, Pastor? If you travel the world, most people have so much less than we do. How many know that's true? And a lot of people, they're just going hand to mouth, just barely getting by. They live in squalor. Uh, they have none of the things that we have. They're just hoping their kids are going to live a better life than they have. Isn't that kind of where, you know, generations past thought this way? It's true. That's the, that's the way it was, you know. But today we have so much prosperity and so much affluence. And one of the things that that does is create a false sense of security. You go, what are you talking about? Well, let me share something with you. You know, I think we end up diligently planning and we prepare for our future. And by the way, I don't think this is wrong. I think this is good. I think the Bible teaches us to do that. And we should do that. But listen, even the best laid plans can go awry. How many, know, how many have ever planned something and it didn't turn out the way you planned? Anybody have that experience? And there were things that came along you just couldn't control, you know? How many know what I'm talking about? And so the scripture that really brings this out is a proverb and it says this, for in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And I like this. You know, the other day, you know, I just kind of, you know, I do a lot of thinking. That's my job, you know. I have to do a little thinking. I work with people. I listen to all kinds of situations. And I was meditating on this text of Scripture, and I actually woke up thinking of this verse. And I loved it because as I was laying there, I was thinking about the latter part of the verse that, you know, I was thinking, okay, we, I, I wrote down, man plans, God determines. In other words, we're all thinking of ideas, we're all shaping our lives, we all have desires, hopes, wishes, dreams. How many say that's me? I fit in that category. I have hopes, desires, wishes, and dreams. Anybody here besides me? Okay, so we're all kind of in the same boat, right? But at the end of the day, it's not what I want so much. It's not what I'm planning, even though as good of a planner as I can be, at the end of the day, it's God who determines. And what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, it's real simple. Think about it. God is the one who controls the timing of events. I can do all the planning I want to, but you know, how many people have said to me, you know, I just happened to get on on it when the going was good. How many have ever had that experience? Or, I invested and it was the wrong time and I lost everything. You know what I'm talking about? How many are getting the idea that we don't control those things? Because we, you know, if we knew the future, we would probably do a lot better investing. How many know that's probably true, right? We would have probably got in on, you know, uh, cell phones or Starbucks or, you know what I mean? Right at the base. Come on now. Isn't that true? Yeah, we'd have thought about that stuff. But, you know, we don't know the future. You have no idea what's about to happen, you know. Some things people try out and think, hey, this is a winner, becomes a loser. Other things people go out, you know, I'm going to give it a shot and it becomes a big winner. We have no idea. Why? Because God's the one who determines. He's the one that brings people into our lives just at the right moment. He's the one that allows setbacks to happen. And we go, I couldn't have planned that for that disaster if my life depended on me. And it does depend on me now, you know. Why am I saying all of this? Because the successes and the failures that we experience, many times God allows. And you know, a lot of us, we get bummed out when we have failures. Isn't that true? And yet sometimes it's the failures in our lives that deepen us the greatest, that re-change our priorities, that reshape our thinking. Sometimes those things are really good. And sometimes the great successes in lives are actually to our own detriment. We become very indifferent. We become shallow. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, what happens sometimes. But the most important thing is we are far more dependent on God than any one of us in this room understands. Your very breath is a gift from God. Your very existence is a gift from God. Listen, James says it this way. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. What is he saying? He's saying every good thing that ever came to you, God gave it to you. You go, well, yeah, but I didn't even have God in my thoughts. It doesn't matter. God created you. Do you know God loves us? I was actually having breakfast with one of the congregants in our church, and he said, he was listening to this uh, football coach, and he said, he gave his team three things. And I love what he said the last thing. He says, we need to love the people the most who deserve it the least. How many think that's a pretty profound thought? To love the people who deserve it the least. Where would we come up with an idea like this? That's how God does it. That's called grace. God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? He gave his best. He gave his own son. 
That is amazing to me. Paul says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at enmity, we're at enemy of God, while we had no thought of God, God was willing to die for us. How many get the idea God's love is given to those that deserve it the least? That is profound. And what we notice here is that God gives us every good thing in life. It comes from God. You go, well, yeah, but I earned it. If you didn't have the energy, didn't have the wisdom, didn't have opportunity, you wouldn't have earned anything. God provided that context for you. We need to be thankful. You know, Jesus knows the outcomes which you and I cannot control or determine. And that tells me something important about Jesus. He is able to take care of even the here and now, but he's also concerned about the future and eternity as well. Jesus is concerned about people that we may not be concerned about. Do you know Jesus loves people you don't like? How about that? That's, that's a, you know, how can you stand that person? Jesus goes, I love them. I died for them. How do you know this, Pastor? Well, the Bible teaches that. We have another clue that this was a Gentile audience from an expression that, that some had come a long distance. Actually, a scholar, James Brooke, points out that this expression was often used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He described the gentle lands to which Israel had been exiled as uh, this expression from distant land. They had come from a long ways distance. So we know from the text that these were probably Gentiles. And remember I told you, Jewish people in Jesus' day did not have a high regard for Gentiles. They just thought they were unclean. So here's Jesus ministering to people that they didn't like. And that actually ticked them off. That's why they didn't like. That was, that was one of the problems that they had with Jesus. Why is he doing this? You know, the thing I notice is that Jesus raises the question. He says, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. He says, if I send them away home, they're going to faint on the way. And then his disciples, I love their answer. It says, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many know we're really great at raising the problems? You know, we're, we're amazing. It's just amazing. When I talk to people, all I hear from most people is the problems. Well, pastor, that's your job, isn't it? You listen to a lot of problems. That's true. But I notice that we're good at coming up with all the problems. How many know it doesn't take a lot of brilliance to come up with all the problems? You know, what really is helpful when you come up with the solutions, right? But most people are good at pointing out the problems. And you know, these guys really identified it. You know, 4,000 people, no grocery store nearby, been hanging around for three days, we've burnt through our food, we're all going to have no food, we've got to go a long ways back, this is not good. They said, where in the world are we going to get food enough to feed them? Now, let's remember something. A few chapters earlier, a few scenes earlier, what Jesus had done was feed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. So in one sense, they weren't very smart because they knew he had the capacity to do some amazing things. They had, I know I've already preached this. Man, Jesus is walking on water, and I'm not talking about in the wintertime. He was like walking on water. He was doing stuff only God can do. As a matter of fact, I keep pointing out to you from Mark's gospel, he doesn't tell us that Jesus is God. He just keeps demonstrating it. How many here, you know, you can walk on water? How many can speak to the wind and the waves? I don't think so. Only God does that. So Jesus is doing all this stuff. You would think that after walking with Jesus and seeing him raise people from the dead, healing sick people, I mean, last week he had healed a man that was deaf and dumb. You know, they're watching this every single day, and all of a sudden they go, what are we going to do about this? Folks, if you have Jesus with you, you don't have to worry about the impossible. For with God, all things are possible. Listen to what happens. They point this problem out. And Jesus says to them, hey, how many loaves do you have? Well, they said, looked around, oh, we got seven loaves left over. I love this story. Because, you know, when Jesus, when he's going to do something, he always takes what we have. See, he's not going to pop it out of nothing. Not normally. He's going to take what we have. And so we learn from the story that it's important that, that actually God is going to let us participate in his miracles. One of the reasons God blesses people is for them to have the resource to bless others. God's designed it so that we would become channels. And you know what happens when we stop thinking this way? Well, I think it's God's blessings are meant to flow through us. But what happens when the flow stops? In other words, what happens when we begin to simply acquire without blessing others? 
What happens when we just say, you know, thank you for what you're giving me, but it's all going to be consumed on me? You know what happens? It affects us. How? In a negative way. You know, I love the stories told of a rich old guy who came to, um, who had a really bad disposition, and he went to visit his rabbi. It's a rabbi story. So he takes the rich man by the hand, takes him to the window, and he says to this guy, oh, what do you see? The old rich guy looks out the window, and he says, well, I see men, I see women and children. And the rabbi takes him by the hand. This time he leads him to a mirror, and he says, now what do you see? No, he says, I see myself. Then the rabbi said, Behold, in the window there's glass, and in the mirror there is glass. But the glass of the mirror is covered with a little silver, and no sooner is the silver added than you cease to see others, but you see only yourself. Now, how many got it? Did you guys get that? What did he say? He's saying one of the dangers of having much is that you forget to help others. Isn't it amazing? It's poor people that usually help other poor people because they know what it's like to struggle. And isn't it amazing that sometimes God allows difficulty in our lives because then we become empathetic and more compassionate. You know, a person who loses a child, they become far more empathetic to other parents who lose children. Isn't that true? I mean, they, there's a sensitivity, like right now. You know, a person that knows what it's like to live with nothing is more empathetic to people who are struggling. They don't usually make remarks like, well, if they would get off their fat duff and go to work, they'd have something. That usually tells me more about the person making that statement than it does about the person in need. I'm just pointing these things out. See, God sometimes has to take things away from us in order for us to become more compassionate, more understanding. One of the, you know, there's a downside to having a lot. We don't understand it. It does something to our soul. Sometimes it you know, it can. It doesn't always have to if we can rise above it, but it can diminish us. God warned the Israelites coming out of the wilderness, going into the promised land. He says, remember me when you're wealthy. You know, don't forget me. And you know what the tragedy is in our culture today? When Canada was a newer nation, when it was struggling, when it was difficult, you know, even in the 30s here, there was a Great Depression. Our parents ate pancakes, oatmeal. That was about it, you know, morning, noon, and night. They struggled. You know, but we've forgotten all of that. We have forgotten what it's like to have less. And sometimes that's affected us in a very negative way because as a culture, I'm not saying everybody, but as a culture, we're just forgetting about God and moving on as if God doesn't exist. What happens when God ministers to our need? I love this. The disciples began to distribute the bread. It says here, Jesus said to them, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and gave thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. How many see that the distribution came through his own disciples? And they did so. They, gave, they had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks to them for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. Then the people ate and were satisfied. How many think that's an amazing story? Seven loaves of bread feeds 4,000 people. Don't you think that's a miracle? What was going on? It was multiplying. There's a sense that when God takes our little and it passes through his blessing, through our hands to others, it actually multiplies and produces satisfaction in other people's lives. But let me move on to the second lesson that we can learn. Not only about Jesus' character, but it's the criticism of Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus is a polarizing figure. He always has been. He always wills be. If you want to run the test, just walk out this week and talk to people about Jesus. Just mention his name. Tell me what you get. A polarizing response. But that's not unusual. Mark structures these events in such a way that, when, that what Jesus has just done to reveal himself to the crowd is the one who provides in the wilderness, the one who can provide all of our needs. But he moves on to the next location. Notice it says in verse 9, continuing on with the story. For about 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples, and they went to the region of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and began to question. Now that word question in the original language, because New Testament is written in Greek, it literally means began to argue and oppose him. You know, I'm just telling you, Jesus had enemies. Isn't this shocking to me? To me the, the person who's the most loving person that ever came to this planet actually had enemies. How many are kind of shocked by that? Now, the Bible says God is love. Jesus Christ is love. He had enemies. 
Do you know, when you demonstrate love to people, it'll actually create enemies. You'll have, you'll have envy. You'll have all kinds of things occurring. And so Jesus had this opposition because they fully did not understand what he was doing. They misunderstood, misinterpreted his mission. And, and so they questioned him. To test him, that's like the same word there that was used by Satan who came to test Jesus in the wilderness or to tempt him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Or the word heaven could be from God. They were asking that Jesus would be some sort of authentication of who he really was. And the Bible says in the next verse, he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Now, this is powerful to me. First of all, these guys had seen Jesus do miracles, okay? What they're asking for is not a miracle. And I like what Philip Brooks says. He says, they didn't want another healing or an exorcism or a feeding or a subjugation of nature. They wanted a sign from heaven, an apocalyptic manifestation that would prove beyond all doubt that Jesus had God's approval. The word, okay, the Pharisees wanted God to valid, you know, validate Jesus before they would accept him. So what was Jesus' response? He sighed deeply. Now, last week when I talked about Jesus sighing when he's about to pray, I said sighing is one expression of prayer, but here's another expression of what sighing means. How many have, you know, you sighed and that's a prayer, but others of you have sighed in frustration. Anybody have a sigh of frustration? Just, just kind of an exasperated, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's sighing, you know, and what we need to understand is the antagonism of the Pharisees parallels somewhat the antagonism of the Israelites to Moses in the wilderness. Now, you have to understand, Moses is the guy, you know, he's all these plagues, he's leading them out, the sea parts, they get into the wilderness, and then there's no water, and they're really upset with Moses, and then he, God tells them, you know, go hit the rock with the rod, and boom, water comes out, and they're drinking for two million, and the herd's with them. I mean, how many think that just a miraculous is happening? But everywhere you go through those 40 years in the wilderness, you get the funny feeling that these guys are not always happy with Moses. Matter of fact, I'm reading, you know, in Book of Numbers especially, they're ready to stone him. They're so upset with him. But meanwhile, Moses is just following this cloud by day and a pillar by night, which is the presence of God. He's just following God, and these guys are really upset with him. Isn't that true that we, that happens to us too? You know, we're not any better than these Israelites. Matter of fact, even the Pharisees, we get all frustrated, you know, we're upset. And, and so Jesus here is a little bit, you know, frustrated with these guys. Matter of fact, Jesus is groaning. Literally, the, the word sign could be groaning in dismay. You could interpret it that way in your Bible. And it seems to reflect God's disgust with the bent, and what's that word? Recalcitrant Israelites. That means hard-hearted, unbending, unmoving, can't convince. It's true. So Jesus is having the same problem. So he refers to this generation. He's signaling the Pharisees' alienation from him and recalls the disbelieving generation of Noah's day and the stubbornness of the Exodus generation in the wilderness. And that generation was, you know, had it turned its back on God, to whom they are unfaithful to God. They've hardened their heart. Ironically, in the story, this is ironic. The Gentiles in the previous story who were far off are close to Jesus than those of his own faith and people like the Pharisees. And so Mark is painting a picture. Here's the picture. He gets there, he's confronted by these Pharisees, which are his own people, and he's so discouraged by them and disgusted with their attitude. What does he do? He gets back into the boat. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a profound picture. What is it a picture of, Pastor? They're rejecting Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He walks away from them. In a sense, because they have rejected him, he rejects them. That is probably the saddest part of the story. Because implied in the story is simply this. His disciples are in the boat with Jesus, get on shore. They're confronted. Jesus exasperatedly sighs, gets back into the boat, and his disciples do what? They follow him and get back into the boat. Is that powerful? 
Why is Jesus so frustrated by them asking for that sign? Why didn't he answer their request? Well, I like what James Edwards says in the Synoptic Gospels, which are the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The demand for signs is itself a sign of attempting to gain by empirical means that which could be gained only by faith and trust. Let me break this down for us. What do people say they want if they're going to believe in God and believe in Jesus? They want evidence. And Jesus says in another passage, we'll get to it, the only evidence I'm going to give you is that I'm going to die and rise from the dead. That's the only evidence you're going to get. Okay? That's going to be my sign of authenticity. But the problem with, you know, evidences is we think we'll believe once we've experienced an evidence. Can I tell you what will happen? Do you know in the time of Jesus, he raised a man from the dead that had been dead for four days in a hot climate, and his, his sister says to Jesus, the man that's dead, the sister of the man that's dead, says to Jesus, Jesus goes, can you roll the stone away? She goes, Jesus, I hate to tell you this, but he's going to stink because he's decomposing. Okay? And Jesus says, I'll just roll the stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And this man comes bounding out of the tomb, okay, after four days. And the crowd immediately polarizes. You know, half of them say, this is from God. And the other half go, this is not from God. They run to the chief priest. And it's that incident that causes Jesus to be arrested and killed. Is that amazing? So when people tell me, if I only saw a miracle, I'd believe, I go, not necessarily. You may, you may not. It doesn't necessarily mean that at all. As a matter of fact, faith that depends on proof is not faith, but only veiled doubt. Faith, like love itself, cannot be proven. It can only be demonstrated by trust and active commitment. See, you can tell a person, I love you, but the only way we're going to really believe it is when we begin to demonstrate that. Isn't that true? It's, it's, really, it's really lived out by my commitment to that person and how I demonstrate my actions towards that individual. And that's what faith is like, that I am trusting you, Lord. And what I've discovered about Christianity is simply this, that when I believe, I begin to see. And so if you're waiting to see, you'll probably never believe. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, try it, you'll like it. That's my paraphrase. Okay, try it, you'll like it. You'll experience it, it's amazing. Remember I told you that, that faith comes when one steps into the boat with Jesus and does not prefer to remain on the safety of the shore. Now look at Jesus in another text when he's asked about a sign, a different occasion. He says to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they said, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he said, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign. They have to remember, these are Jewish, these are religious people. They should know better, he's thinking. But none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What happened to Jonah? He was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's speaking of his resurrection. So, the resurrection is so important to Christianity because... It's the stamp of authentication of who Jesus is. Now, why is that so important? Let me just say this statement. I look around, and I go to many funerals. I've been to three in the last three weeks. Rachel said to me that, is everybody dying? I said, no, it just seems that way. But, you know, three in three weeks is a lot, a little intense, right? But when people that are not believers talk to me about heaven and, you know, life after death, I'm, I'm always wondering, what are they basing their premise and hope on? Because for me, a child of God, I'm basing it on one thing, that Jesus Christ was crucified, died, buried, and was raised from the dead. He conquered death. And he is the first fruits to all those who put their faith in him, so that you and I, who are trusting in him, will also have eternal life. But let me move on to the third point, and I'll make this one real brief, is the challenge of Jesus. Jesus now warns his disciples. Or, we can say it this way. This is now intended for all readers and listeners. We're going to be warned about becoming hard-hearted. We're going to be warned about dismissing who Jesus is and what he has done. How many know warnings are kind of important in life? 
they're actually a very loving thing. If you're about ready to fall over a cliff and somebody warns you, how many think that's a very loving thing to do? I would appreciate that. If somebody says, don't touch that, is it extremely hot? Are you appreciative they told you not to touch it? Because if you did, you'd get a severe burn. How many think a warning isn't always a bad thing? See, we have a negative aspect. You think warnings are bad? Not necessarily. It depends what you're being warned from. Now in verse 14, it says the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. And then Jesus gives them the warning. Be careful, he warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And then they started discussing with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus said to them, what are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Now, isn't that an interesting discussion? You know what Jesus is saying? You guys are so locked into the material world that when I warned you about the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, you immediately reverted to the natural level. I'm speaking metaphorically. You know, yeast, how many know what yeast is? How many ever baked bread? Anybody ever done that? You put a little yeast in the dough and it rises? And I've done this. I've baked bread before. I know, you're shocked. <laughs> you have to put yeast in dough in order for it to rise, right? And then you bake it afterwards, after it's risen. So you, uh, the, the point is simply this. Jesus is warning against what? See, yeast is symbolic in the Bible, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, of something that grows and develops. And how many know evil, just a little bit of evil, if it's left unchecked, and undealt with in our lives. You know what happens? It grows and develops. And eventually it'll overcome us. And by the way, I want to just make a statement. It's going to be really shocking to some of you. All the addictions that we're dealing with, we like to label it all kinds of different things, but for the majority, it's not a disease, folks. It's a sin. See, and you know, when you don't identify it correctly, you don't address it correctly. That's a shocking statement. I'm making a pretty sweeping statement here, and I say it because... What we don't understand about sin is it's so powerful, it's addictive. That's the nature of sin. It's addictive. And then we're trapped in it. And then we have to try to get out of it. And it's very difficult. You know what it takes? It takes a power greater than ourselves to deliver us from our addictions. It takes the power of God. And if you study these recovery programs, that's what it's all about. Identifying that you have a problem. That's, a, that's confessing my sin. And number two, acknowledging I need a power greater than myself to get out of it. That's acknowledging I need God, however we're expressing it. But it's interesting. Um, Jesus is basically saying this. If you guys aren't getting it, let me explain it to you. Thank goodness Jesus does this. He says, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? Remember that statement I said remembrance was an important word? He now brings it out. He goes, listen to the implications. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? And the right answer was 12, they replied. And when I had broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? What is he saying? Are you guys so locked into this earthly world that all you can focus in on is the things of this world. I want to close with this thought. The other day I got a nice note from someone from our church and they, they mentioned something about, you know, Pastor, you have this destiny. And I thought, well, that's very sweet. But I'm getting a little older. And, you know, I'm thinking about if my destiny is going to happen on earth, I have no idea what that destiny is on earth because it's, I think I'm coming up towards the end of time. And like when you're 20 years old, you can talk about your destiny. But when you're in my age group, you don't talk about destiny. So I was, I was kind of mulling that over in my mind, okay? I was thinking, like, like, what is this person trying to communicate? And then today, in my quiet time, because, you know, I get up early and I pray and I wait on God on Sunday mornings, and my mind is, you know, going on all kinds of trains of thought. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about that statement. And I want to close with this thought. I was reading Psalm 73. How many know what Psalm 73 talks about? Let me give you the highlights real quickly. It's a righteous person that, uh, who feels like they're serving God, but they're wondering if it really pays off. And when they look around and they see all the people that aren't righteous doing all the wrong things, and they see that their lives are going good, they're saying, why am I breaking, why am I 
you know, struggling to do the right thing when I see people do the wrong things and get ahead? Isn't that kind of a great question? Anybody ever ask yourself that question? Why is it sometimes the good guys end up last and the bad guys end up first? You know, is there any fairness in all of this? But there is. And you know what he says here in verse 17? It says, Till I entered the sanctuary of the Lord, and then I understood their final destiny. Ooh. What's he saying? He's saying, Folks, believe it or not, there's a life after this one. And the life after this one is eternal. This one's temporary. And the Apostle Paul says it this way. I'm moving through a lot of stuff here. We've already covered this. Believe it. There. Oh, I want this one. Oh, I'm not going to get it. Let me just read it. He says, So we fix our eyes on what is, not on what is seen, but what is, on, what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Our destiny is the life to come. That's our destiny. And I'll tell you what this life is about. This is a preparatory life to prepare you for the life to come. How you live here is going to affect what's going to happen there. The Bible teaches that very clearly. And if we don't live right down here, it's not going to go so well for us beyond this life. As a matter of fact, even for Christians, some people, you know, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to get to heaven, but... It's going to be an embarrassment because I was never really training myself to be ready for the life to come. You know, I said this in the first service. We have a young player, hockey player in our church, and I, I learned something from other people. The coaches will always say, you have to practice at a certain level in order to play at a certain level. Did you know that? And if you don't practice at the level at which you're going to play at, you're probably not going to play at that level. This life is a preparation for the life to come. We have a destiny. And you have to ask yourself the question in your mind, what is my destiny? It is a great question. And until you enter into the sanctuary, this room, this is called the sanctuary, until you enter into the place where God is making an evaluation, you're going to get the wrong answer. Your destiny is different than your legacy. Your destiny is about your future and what's going to happen beyond even this life. Is that powerful? What we believe about Jesus affects our destiny. How we handle the challenges and understand the right priorities of life will affect our destiny. So I'm going to have a stand this morning. We're going to close in a word of prayer. You know, I deeply believe in my heart that God has spoken to hearts today. God has been speaking to hearts today. And you're here today, and I'm going to ask two questions. You're a, you're a Christian. You know you're a Christian. I'm going to start with the Christians, okay? And you can say, with every head bowed, you can say to me, Pastor, today, God spoke to me, and here's the question. Have I got the right priority? Is it about living for that which is seen, or am I living for that which is unseen? Am I really living to prepare for my destiny? That is my priority. And if it's not, today you're saying, Lord, I want it to be. I want to shift my priority today. Because I recognize I have got the wrong priority. I have gotten caught up in this challenging thing called earthly life. And I have kind of forgotten that Jesus can take care of me, my material needs, so I don't have to make that my primary focus I don't have to be tempted. I don't have to forfeit my soul in order to acquire the things that are needed in this life. As a matter of fact, you know, you know when, when the devil said to Jesus, turn these stones into bread because he was hungry, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. What he was saying is, that's not my priority. There's something else that's helping me live life, and it's far higher. And pastor, I'm, I've been actually trying to t turn stones into bread when I should actually be trusting God to break bread for me and to be focusing on that which is eternal. And that's you today. God's speaking to your heart. Just raise your hand this morning. That's you. God wants to change your priority. Way up, guys. Come on. Way up. Yeah, quite a few people saying, yep, yeah, wrong priority. And by the way, that'll mess you up. Believe me, it'll mess you up. 
It doesn't mean you don't, you don't have to take care of natural things. I believe in all that. I believe in planning. I believe in all that stuff. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is what's the right priority? Get it right. Now, for some of others here today, maybe you don't know Jesus. And I've just been pointing out to you, it's really easy to say I don't need God in an affluent society until crisis comes, until you have a terminal illness, until the one you love walks away from you, until the child dies, and all of a sudden you go, my whole world is spinning upside down, Pastor. You know what? We are very fragile. We can plan all we want to, but it's God who determines. And I want you to know that even though you may feel like you don't deserve God's goodness, remember I said he loves the people that deserve it the least. I qualify for that, Pastor. That's me. You're talking to me this morning. God's talking to me this morning. And I want to invite you to get to know Jesus. Because, folks, I'm going to tell you something. That's what it's all about. Think about it. God became a man. That, that's so mind-boggling. You say, well, I have other religious viewpoints. Yeah. But I'll tell you this, all these other religious viewpoints, I'm going to say it very humbly, they may teach you a lot of good morality, but you're not going to find one that teaches you God understands humanity the way Christianity does. Because God became a man. When I pray to Christ, when I pray to God, and I'm praying in the name of Jesus, I know I'm praying to one who is sympathetic with my humanity. What an amazing thing that is. Isn't that great? He's sympathetic. He knows what it's like to be a human being. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to experience temptation. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be deserted. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He's gone through all that stuff. I feel like I'm talking to someone who understands and is not condemning me because the Bible said God, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world but to save it. So he's not here to condemn you. Nor am I. That's not my job. I, don't, I tell people, I'm not your judge, and I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to point you to a Savior who loves you, even though you and I don't deserve him. Listen, I was a rascal. I didn't deserve him. But one day in desperation, I was so broken, I cried out to him. You know what he did? He forgave my sins and changed my life. The greatest thing that ever happened to me was meeting Jesus. And if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I want to meet him, just with every head bowed right now, just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. I want to meet him. I want to meet this Jesus. I want to experience this life you're talking about. It's not just the forever life in the future. It's changing your life in the here and now. Jesus will change your life in the here and now. Anyone here? Okay. Had some people in the first service, but maybe nobody here in the second. It's fine. All right. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you today. Thank you for your amazing love and grace. Thank you that you're the one that makes a, a huge difference. Lord, help us to have the right priorities. Help us to know how much you love us, how much you care for us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.